0: Hello there, and welcome to the 5 by your bi weekly dose of rapid fire board game reviews. This week, we take leave of the mundane as Lindsay reviews Alchemists. Mason parties with Anomia. I build fanciful castles for Mad King Ludwig. Ruth rolls up some characters in roleplayer. And Stephanie takes us on a journey with her review of Celestia.
1: Hello, it's Lindsay here, and Starm going to delve into Alchemists, a fabulous worker placement game with unique difference. Alchemist is a 2-4 player game designed by Mataz Kotry, published by Czech Games Edition with artwork by David Cockard, that plays in around 90-120 to 120 minutes. Let me start by fessing up to the fact I'm not very good at it. Yet. It took me a good few plays to get my head around it, and I feel like it needs a repeated plays to become half-decent at it. Well, for me at least. In Alchemist, you are competing to discover ancient magical secrets and only reputation points by mixing potions and publishing your theories. Across six rounds, you take actions from the different areas of the board which you declare at the start of each round. You gain knowledge by taking and combining ingredients cards and testing the results using an app to scan the cards, and this randomises the results every time you play. You use your own playbook to collect your results using cardboard tokens that you place on the intersection of ingredients you combines, and good old-fashioned pencil and paper to mark your deductions. At the end of the game, you have a final exhibition and use the app to check if your theories were indeed correct, and this is where you can lose or gain your final points. This is the briefest of rules explanations for such a full game, so please do go and check it out on the CG website or Board game Geek to get the full spectrum of the roles. I first heard of this one when it was released in 2014 and around the time I was getting into the hobby in earnest, but I didn't take the plunge and go for it until last year. The reason as to why it seems a little daft in hindsight and the main reason was that it uses the app as part of the gameplay. I felt at the time it was a bit gimmicky. Fast forward a few years later and now I'm rolling with the changes a little bit more. Late last year I thought why on earth haven't I got this game yet? The theme is really my cup of tea, I like witchy, magical, supernatural shenanigans, I enjoy worker placement games, and I thought, you know, good on the designer for being one of the first to use an app in the game and to have come up with such a brilliant design that works around it. Also, I also that the app isn't integral to the gameplay itself and you can play without it. You use the app to scan the ingredients cards when you mix potions to help you to choose what ingredient X styles or mixed with Y. And as much as I welcome the fact that it is possible to do this manually, having now played the game it seems so ludicrously unnecessary to do so. You'd actually need an extra body to facilitate, and aside from who on earth would want to do that, it's also incredibly fiddly. So I can safely say I was being a bit of a luddite about it, and that was rather silly. As I've mentioned before, I do love worker placement games. It's got to be one of my favourite tabletop genres. And as work placement games go, this one is pretty solid. I like the rules around the way you can determine the player actions, and you have to really choose your spots wisely. The deduction aspect of the game hurts my brain, and this is the part I'm not very good at. But I've since discovered I'm not alone in this and I've come to realise it's completely acceptable to suck at alchemists. But I think this can put people off because in all fairness most people, including myself, don't like being bad at stuff. But in the case of alchemists, I really don't mind and I really appreciate the cleverness of the game in this respect. Because actually, in six rounds it's highly probable you're not going to figure everything out or get everything right. But if you cleverly fake it until you make it, so to speak, that can win you the game. The sooner you start publishing theories, the sooner you can start earning reputation points. And there's much more chance you're being correct in those early rounds when you haven't tested too much. But when you publish theories, you use certificate tokens to wager just how certain you are. Therefore, you don't have to be 100% correct. So that pays to be daring earlier on, but perhaps not so daring you'll lose the points you gained at the end of the game for being utterly wrong. And the longer you take, the higher the chances are your theories will be correct. But by that time, you could have fallen behind somewhat, and then your plan catch up. So it's really a tough balancing act, and the decisions you make really do matter. Another way to play is to endorse an opponent's theory so you can piggyback off their efforts. I tried that last time when I started to fall behind, and it was pretty apparent my opponent knew much more than I did. And it was a tad underhanded, I know, but it got me moving up the scoreboard at least. But it didn't win me the game. I can categorically say that this game has no chill. You need to be so on the ball, it's like if you screw one thing up, it'll come toppling down. And I think on more than one occasion my concentration has lapsed for a moment, I've made a small error, and then it's really right my brain in a knot, and I don't know where I am or what I'm doing anymore. Now I must address a few niggles I experienced with the game. When you slot the player board together it doesn't sit symmetrically, and it suffers from wear and tear after a few plays. That so can be a bit of an OCD nightmare. The print on the paper ingredients list is really small, and if the light isn't quite right I'm straining my eyes to see what the symbols are. These things bother me, but they are by no means deal breakers. To end on a positive note, the rulebook is lovely, full and well written, satirical, entertaining. I love the artwork in the game, it's vivid and cute, and there is some fantastic detail when you look closely at the bold. Also, just to mention, the app works really well, I've never encountered any issues with it. An expansion, The King's Golem, was released at the end of last year. And I'm sure I'll get it at some stage in the near future. But with a game as full as this and one that I'm still finding my way around, logically, it seems a bit unnecessary to buy at the moment. But I'm sure I will because I'm an unstoppable game buy machine. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Half Meeples, pop up my blog, shinyhapmeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or follow my other nonsense on Twitter, capital S Capital H Meeples. Bye for now.
2: Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about anomia. I don't like parties, uh, because they're full of people, and I haven't been to one in about 15 years, but I do like party games. There are two primary categories of party game in my mind, objective and subjective. Objective party games are things like taboo, where an answer is either right or wrong, and subjective party games are things like apples to apples, and of course it's loathsome offspring, where there is no right or wrong, only opinion. One of these kinds of games I love, and the other I absolutely despise. And unless this is your first time listening to us, I bet you can guess which is which. Anomia is a purely objective party game, and one of my favorites. Designed by Andrew Innes, and first published in 2010 in the U.S. by his company Anomia Press, there are dozens of other localized editions, as well as the 2013 Party Edition, which triples the number of card decks. It's both incredibly simple and horrendously difficult. It's just a deck of cards, and each card has a symbol and a category. Uh, Some quick examples. A green plus sign in the words, Sesame Street Character. A brown asterisk and the words, Olympic athlete. Four red dots and the words, South American City. On your turn, you flip over the top card of the deck and you place it in front of you. When the card in front of you matches the symbol on someone else's card, you want to be the first to name something from your opponent's category. If you do, you get their card, and the most cards at the end of the game is the winner. Now, as a straight pitch, that sounds like not the most interesting game in the world. But the beauty of anomia happens because of a particular quirk of how our brains function. The part of your conscious mind paying attention to which symbols are present is very different from the part of your mind that controls memory recall and categorization. So during the game, you're constantly trying to keep track of what symbols are face-up and active in everyone else's pile, which is of course purely pattern recognition. But when that pattern recognition triggers the, oh, it's my turn, reflex, you have to spit out a fresh answer to a very specific category, adding to your brain's frustration there are wild cards in the deck. When they come out, they change the game to make different symbols match one another, This helps keep the flow moving along, and Anomia plays very differently every game, even with the same deck. So all of this makes Anomia incredibly difficult to be good at. More often than not, this is a turn for me. A matching card flips over, and the category is game shows. And instead of saying Jeopardy, or Wheel of Fortune, or The Gong Show, or Treasure Hunt, I stare blankly at the green plus sign while Megan rolls off an easy answer to my category, European Countries. It's called Anomia, because Anomia is a real medical condition where you're unable to remember the names of everyday objects. I could talk for hours about TV game shows, but in the tension of the card flip, I completely lock up. The constant level of tension in Anomia is one of the reasons I like it so much. On everyone's turn, everyone else is playing. You have to pay attention to the card that gets flipped, and everyone else's face-up category all the time. On every flip of the card, it could end up being your turn, so there's zero downtime, which is especially good, I think, in a short party game. Now, technically, Anomia plays 3-6, but it's probably best with 4 or 5 players. This is a game where more chaos directly equals more fun. We play it pretty frequently two-player, each using two face-up piles, and I really don't see why you couldn't go to seven or eight players if you don't mind total chaos. I also think Anomia has quite a bit of added value for people who play a lot of other party games. Because it comes with so many cards, and the categories on those cards are so good and so interesting, you can use the cards in a whole bunch of other games. I love the game Tapple, but the pitiful card set that comes with it made it wear out very quickly. Using Anomia decks to play Tapple, however, has kept it fresh for us. And I've never tried it, but I think you could play some really killer rounds of Scategories using the Scategories die and Anomia decks. There are a couple of different purchasing options for Anomia. You can go with the original two-deck set, which is very inexpensive and comes in a nice small box. But if you're in any way serious about party games and getting into Anomia, I would highly recommend buying the Party Edition, which comes with six decks of cards and over 425 categories. We've had it for several years and played it dozens of times, and I've only unwrapped four of the decks. While some of the decks have similar categories, no two cards are the same in the entire set, and each deck is well balanced across a broad range of knowledge and human experience. In theory, all of the decks could be shuffled together for some sort of mega-play experience to keep everything fresh, essentially indefinitely, but I have never tried it. Let me know if you do. Box and components are reasonable given its relatively low price point, but I highly encourage you to trash the insert that comes with Party Edition so you can store the original game inside the Party Edition box. In a perfect world, the decks in Anomia would all be linen finished, but I don't know that the increase in price could be justified. The base game is around $15, and the party edition is around $25, both available from Amazon. Like most games I talk about, I'm very bad at Anomia, but that's just because I'm bad at games in general. What makes something to Keeper for me is that I like being bad at it. I lost, but I still had fun usually means a game stays in the collection. I won, but I don't really care usually means that it goes. So who should buy Anomia? people who like word games, people who know a little bit about a lot of things, not a lot about a few things, people who like shouting, fist-pounding, and frustration, and people who want to laugh because your friend said something stupid, not because a card said a dirty word. I give a 10 out of 10 party hats for parties full of people who hate parties. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason Hello
0: there, it's Mike, and today I want to talk about Castles of Mad King Ludwig by Ted Alspach and Bezier Games. Ludwig II of Bavaria, also known as the Swan King, is best known these days for having opulent tastes and using his personal fortune to fund the construction of three elaborate castles during his 22-year reign in the latter half of the 1800s. Nothing as crazy as the castles you'll be building in this excellent game, but the theme fits the function of the game well, and odds are against a long-dead Bavarian king suing for slander. So on with the show. In this visually appealing game from 2014, you are building a castle one room at a time for the king. Everyone starts with an entryway, 15,000 marks, and two bonus cards. The rooms are lined up on an excellent main board that clearly shows you where everything goes. At the start of each round, the current master builder draws cards from the room deck for each empty space in the buy row, then selects the top tile of the specified size to place in the row. In player order, each player other than the Master Builder chooses which room they want to purchase and pays the money for that room to the Master Builder. The Master Builder then chooses their room last, paying their money to the bank. Which room you want to build depends on what fits your current layout. There are some building restrictions, but generally speaking, if there's a way into the room and it doesn't overlap other rooms, then you're fine. You'll also want to consider what your bonus cards are. Those two cards you start with, and ones you get later for finishing utility rooms, give you points at the end of the game for having certain rooms or achieving certain conditions. Oh yeah, finishing rooms will give you bonuses. So you'll want to finish a room if you can. A room is finished if, and only if, each and every door of the room leads to another room. You can cover up doors so that they only open to walls of other rooms placed next to them, but then that room will never be finished. So keep that in mind when choosing your room. Don't forget you only start with 15,000 marks and depending upon where the master builder places the rooms on the buy row, they can cost anywhere between 1,000 to 15,000 marks. The only way to get more money when not the master builder is to skip your buy that round and take 5,000 marks from the bank. You should also keep in mind that many of the rooms have icons on them that either give placement bonuses or penalties depending upon what rooms they connect to. And lastly, we are building these castles for King Ludwig himself, and he has picked some favorite tokens to show what his preferences are as well. The player who best fulfills each of these requests at the end of the game gets 8 points, second gets 4, and so on down. Okay, so did you get a room picked, paid for, and placed? Great. Now score the points for that room, adjust your points for bonuses and penalties given by the room and adjacent rooms, bonus points given for basement rooms, and take the bonus for any rooms that you've completed. And that's it. Play continues with everyone scoring rooms as their place until the room deck runs out. At that point, everyone scores their bonus cards in the of tokens and the highest score wins. So, as I'm sure you can tell, this game could be in the dictionary under either Fiddly or AP, and quite possibly both. Between the placement considerations, the 10 different room sizes, the 8 different room types each with different completion bonuses, room placement bonuses or penalties, and the master builder's responsibility to set the price for each room, that's a lot to consider. So why do I like this game in spite of all that? Mostly it's for the building of the castles. The rooms are lovely and neat. The favorite tokens and bonus cards give you short-term goals, as does the desire to complete rooms for their bonuses. It's rare that I look at the Byro and don't want any of the rooms available. And while fiddly, the interplay of the rooms amongst each other is also fun. Each room is uniquely named, and who wouldn't want the cloakroom, billiards room, or Venus Grotto in their castle? And at the end of the game, everyone has a unique castle built that we usually take a moment to admire and compare. And just so you know, while I find the gameplay scales well from two players with my wife to four players with friends, the configurable setup that allows for this is a tad tedious. And speaking of playing with my family, if you find the amount of complication a bit high, we often remove the price setting portion of the game and just shift the rooms from the most to least expensive to fill in the empty slots. It isn't ideal, but it allows players to concentrate more on their own goals and doesn't bring the game to a halt every round while the new master builder tries to figure out what everyone needs and may be willing to pay for each room. But if all else fails, just download and do some pass and play with the excellent mobile app that's what I've started to do more and more. So that's Castles of Mad King Ludwig, a game I truly enjoy despite its fiddly and AP-inducing nature. So if you'd like to discuss the game or castles in general, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly.
3: 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I want to talk about another dice game, this one a lot bigger and a lot newer than last episode's Warful Bonanza. The game I'm talking about this time is Roleplayer, designed by Keith Matika and published by his company Thunderworks Games in 2016. Roleplayer takes the act of creating a character for a roleplaying game and turns it into an entire game by itself. The goal of the game is to build the most fitting character for your random combination of race, class, alignment, and backstory. In order to do so, each player will roll and draft dice to determine their character's attribute scores or stats, and will also buy cards to give their characters traits, skills, weapons, and armor. All of this put together will hopefully by the end of the game build a picture of a character ready to set out on adventures. Each round of the game has two phases, drafting dice and then buying cards from the market. There are two major decisions to make during the drafting, which die to take and where to place it once you have it, and both can leave players pretty tormented as they consider their options. You see, the die you pick also determines the initiative order, in which you will get to buy cards in the market. Players who take a lower value die get to purchase before their other opponents. But since higher values tend to be more useful for building your character, it can get pretty difficult to decide what to value. And Then you add in the fact that some colors of dice provide endgame points for particular players, and that gold dice provide immediate gold coins for use in the market phase, and there's a lot to consider. And then deciding where to place the die you just drafted gets even trickier. Your class sets goals for each attribute score. Some are ranges, some are minimums, and one will be an exact number to hit. Each attribute score is the sum of the three dice placed in its row of your player board, And so you want to be sure you can reach the required total if you want to score the points associated with each stat. But your backstory also wants particular colors of dice in particular spots of the player board, and as you have to fill in each row left to right, you need to be careful not to leave yourself stuck when that color you need comes up. On top of that, there's the fact that there's an optional action associated with each attribute that you get to take if you place there, and getting the right action at the right time can be extremely powerful, since these actions are things like flipping dice to their opposite side, re-rolling, or changing the value. It's a lot to consider, and it is a lot of math, but I don't find it overwhelming at all. It's a challenging but manageable puzzle to find the best place to use each die, and it gets more brain-burnery as the game progresses, which I like. And when you do manage to hit an attribute score exactly and get a useful action out of that same placement, it's really really satisfying. Now once all the dice have been placed, the players in initiative order get to choose and pay for an available card from the market, or discard a card to take coins. While certainly simpler than the dice placement, the market phase in roleplayer still has some consequences to the decisions. There are a variety of card types, so there is often a choice between taking something that will let you manipulate dice or stats during the game, or something that will boost your final score. Many of the cards also offer ways to mitigate low attribute scores or even turn them into advantages. Which means being forced to take low-valued dice doesn't mean a player is out of the running, so players get to stay interested in the proceedings even if they've had a few bum rolls. It's a game that I always finish feeling satisfied with at each part of my decision making, regardless of the final score, and getting to see what kind of characters everyone actually ended up with can be pretty fun. It's also a satisfying game to play in terms of the components. Player boards are nice and chunky, with cutouts to hold the dice securely, preventing table bumps from being a problem, and the dice themselves have a decent heft to them. Adding to the game's table presence is the gorgeous art, which is full of rich color. Each player board is double-sided, depicting male and female options for a particular fantasy race, and the characters have a pleasingly diverse appearance. I was especially tickled by the male elf not being a blonde with a slim pointed face, and the dwarf female is my favorite art in the game. The art on the cards is equally good. It all has a whimsical touch, and there's an underlying sense of humor to the entire game that manages to not feel force, which is a tricky balance to pull off. RoboPlayer is a game I can't get enough of. I'm tempted to spend either time or money to upgrade some components and add an insert, which is just a sure sign that a game has me hooked. After all, why waste resources gussying up a game that's just okay? Now, I will warn, the contrast between whimsical fantasy art and a brain burning math puzzle can be disconcerting for some players. But if anything I've said sounds appealing, then I can't recommend the game highly enough. It's thinky, it's relatively quick playing, it's beautiful, and you get to chuck some satisfyingly chunky dice. There's also an upcoming expansion that promises to let players pit their newly created characters against foes, and while I don't know if that actually interests me, I know many people are excited to see how it works out, so look out for that coming soon. And until next time, I'm off to unpack and recover from yet another con, but if you want to talk more about character creation, you can reach me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening.
4: I grew up smack dab in the early to mid-80s, and on those days when I got to stay home sick or on school holidays, my obsession was game shows. My favorite? Press your luck with the constant contestant pleas of no whammies, no whammies, stop. Oh, and I also really loved that part of the bozo show where some kid would get to play the grand prize game and chuck ping pong balls into half-gallon buckets for one of those I don't know, like a Carvel ice cream cake or maybe a bicycle. I used to set up cereal bowls in the hallway of my home and practice just how accurately I could toss things into them. You know, just in case Bozo himself ever asked me to be on the show. Both games really tapped into my five-year-old obsession with just pushing things one more time. So it's really no surprise that I find an almost frenzied level of joy when I get to play Celestia. Celestia, designed by Aaron Weisblum and published in 2015 by Blam Games, is a reworking of his 1999 title, Cloud9. In Celestia, you and the other players are playing adventurers, flying on a magical, whimsical aircraft, making an ever more dangerous journey from city to city. At the start of the trip, each player places his or her colored pawn in the airship and are then dealt some cards. One of the players is chosen as the starting captain for the journey, and he or she rolls a couple die to reveal the way that nature's trying to kill them. Sometimes you get lucky and it's smooth skies ahead, but other times you might be facing lightning or pirates or even birds. The other players can either choose to jump ship and explore the city below and know that they're safe from nature's wrath, or they can put their faith in their captain that they'll be able to escape and continue on their journey. If the captain can play cards matching symbols on the dice, the party makes it through unharmed and continues on to the next city, leaving those doubtful passengers behind to explore the city below and grab some victory points. Then captaining duty moves on to the next player, dice are rolled, and the other passengers make their choice and cross their fingers. The further a player makes it across the map before jumping ship, the more points that they'll get. So just what happens when the captain doesn't have those cards to play to get their party out of harm's way? Well, everyone still in the ship comes crashing down to earth. No land to explore, no treasures to find. Just a rapid descent to their ultimate demise. See, now who's laughing at me for getting nervous and jumping out at city number two? Not you, because I have points and you don't. But have no fear, it's time to start this journey all over again. All of the players return to the ship back at city number one, and everyone draws another card to add to their hand. The first player to have 50 treasure points wins. It's simple. The artwork? Impeccable. And it's a great group game to pull out to the table when you have players who share that love of the gamble. It's also one I always suggest to a group when the number of unexperienced board game players outweighs those who, like me, live for this stuff it's beyond simple to teach and plays pretty quickly with each round lasting maybe 2 to 3 minutes and the whole game itself taking about 20 plus there's an actual 3d airship for your pawns to ride in like with a propeller that spins and everything and you know how i love components like this the box says it's good for 2 to 6 players i've played it with every combination from 2 to 6 and well it's fine with 2 players There is nothing like a five or six player game. This was one of the games we actually played on New Year's Eve, and while I'm not saying Champagne is required to play this game, I will say it's a fun, exciting, and quick game even when you and your friends have had a few. The chants of, go, 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 as those in the ship waited to see if the captain was able to get them onto their next destination, or crash, crash, crash from those who had already abandoned their fellow crewmates, made this a game where all six of us felt invested on every player's turn, and that's not always easy to find. Celestia is a game that feels like a party without really being a party game. You still get to use some memory skills and some card counting as well as personal hand management, but the real fun comes from just enjoying the journey. Celestia from Aaron Wiseblum, retails for about twenty-five dollars and can be found almost anywhere you get your games. For the Five by, this has been Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, stay playful.
0: Thank you for listening to the Five by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at Five by Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebookcom 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild number two eight one zero and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening.